morning. Uh, a couple other things that, uh, oops, try turning this on. There, oh, it's on, good. Uh, before, uh, before I begin the sermon, let me uh, just mention a couple of uh, other things uh, coming up. One, uh, you see in your bulletin that uh, Dr. Wallace uh, will be here. Uh, Dan Wallace is a professor of New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. He is one of the world's leading authorities on the text of the New Testament, and he goes around the world taking pictures of biblical manuscripts, and uh, he puts them online so that scholars can study them. He's also a terrific guy, and he is going to be here in just a few weeks. Uh, in our library, we have this uh, DVD. This is of a video that he did, uh, a debate that he did with Bart Ehrman. Some of you may have heard of Bart Ehrman at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, uh, who is a skeptic as to the reliability of the New Testament uh, manuscripts. Uh, the title of the DVD is, Can We Trust the Text of the New Testament? And I'll give you a spoiler alert. Dr. Wallace says yes. Um, he's going to be here. He's going to be here in November on the 17th and then the night before, Saturday night, and uh, you'll be getting the flyer in your uh, Inu Hopes this week. Uh, Saturday night we're going to have a, uh, a lecture here uh, with a dessert reception that uh, BJ and Ron's House Church is graciously hosting for us. A uh, good time will be had by all, whether you like it or not. And um, on Tuesday, some of you may have seen in the news uh, that there is going to be a, a push this week um, with regard to immigration reform. A number of people are going to be descending upon Washington to uh, talk to folks in Congress about uh, reforming our nation's bro broken immigration system. This is the one issue on which New Hope uh, has decided that we will be active, and uh, I will be down in D.C. on Tuesday. Uh, would covet your prayers that I don't say anything stupid um, or more stupid than usual uh, as we talk with various uh, congressional staff. Um, so I uh, wanted to let you know about that. Uh, so on Monday, uh, I got to go up to New York and uh, see a lecture by Rabbi... Lord Jonathan Sachs. Jonathan Sachs is the former chief rabbi of Great Britain, and uh, my understanding is that that position comes uh, with a seat in the House of Lords. So um, he's kind of like uh, N.T. Wright, who was, you know, Lord Dr. Bishop Nicholas Thomas Wright or something like that. He's, you know you've made it when you've got more titles than anybody can really use to describe you. Uh, but uh, in addition to writing some, some marvelous uh, works on, on, uh, on theology and ethics, uh, Rabbi Sachs uh, wrote a, a lovely uh, version of the Siddur, the prayer book. Um, it was a little strange watching somebody ask him to sign the prayer book. I, I, don't, know that I, could, I don't know that I could do that. Um, but uh, but what he, he was talking about was the importance of creative minorities. He talked about the fact that uh, the Jewish people have historically had a role in society of being a creative minority, being a minority that contributed to the life of the community around them. He said, our call from God is to be true to our faith while being a blessing to others regardless of their faith. And he quoted, the, or he cited the letter that Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 29. The prophet Jeremiah is in Jerusalem and he writes a letter to the exiles 
who have been dragged off to Babylon. And uh, I'll just read the beginning. This is what Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Interesting, the pronoun there, right? It doesn't say all those that the Babylonians carried into exile, all those I carried, I, the Lord of hosts, that is, the Lord of the heavenly armies. None of this, God is saying, happened against my will. I'm saying this to everybody that I sent off into exile. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Don't decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to Yahweh for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Kind of a countercultural message to people who have been kicked out of their land and sent somewhere else. People who have been dumped off into exile. What he doesn't say is, sit there and be bitter. Close in on yourselves. Hate the people around you. No, he says, pray for the prosperity of this place where I have sent you. Be fruitful, multiply. Because as it prospers, then you too will prosper. That, Rabbi Sachs said, is what it means to be a creative minority. And I'll repeat that quote. Our call from God is to be true to our faith while being a blessing to others regardless of their faith. Naturally, that reminded me of Genesis chapter 12. Many of you remember this passage when Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I'm going to show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him. The paradigm here is that God is choosing one person out of whom he's going to create a family, a people, a nation, a movement through whom he will bless the world, through whom he will do his work of reconciliation of the entire cosmos, the entire world. He's choosing this one person not so that he can hoard God's blessings for himself, not so that he can have his special God-religious experience. He is blessing him so that he can be a blessing. And so, Rabbi Sachs' lecture reminded me of this passage. And it also reminded me of the movie clip that I hope we have ready to roll now. Not this part. He doesn't look a thing like her. I reckon I'm... In history... That doesn't mean that we still can't be... Or her either, for that matter. Okay. Well, then, here's to us being great friends.
Um, okay, this is um, this is not the clip that we have ready. <laughs> Sorry. Do you, do, you, do you have the one that starts at seventeen sixteen? Okay. Hey, that is not correct. Um, we'll, we'll bring this up another time. Well, let's move ahead to Genesis 15. So after some drama involving Abram rescuing his, uh, his nephew Lot, who keeps getting himself into all kinds of trouble, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Lord Yahweh, what can you give me since I remain childless? The one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, you haven't given me any children. This servant in my household is going to be inheriting all my stuff. And the word of Yahweh came to him. This man is not going to be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside. He said, Abe, look at, this, look at the heavens. Count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed Yahweh, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And skipping ahead. In chapter 16, after receiving this great promise, receiving God's assurance that Abram would become the father of a great nation, what happens? Well, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children at this point, but she did have an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, Yahweh has kept me from having children, so go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said, and after Abram had been living in Canaan for ten years, i.e. ten years after this promise, Sarai's wife took her Egyptian servant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May Yahweh judge between you and me. What, Abram said, you told me to do this. Just because she says it's okay doesn't mean it's okay. Sure, you can go out with your friends tonight. So then... Verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son he'd born. And Abram was 86 when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So it's going pretty well so far for Abe, right? He's, he and his wife are barren, can't have any kids. God gives him a great promise. Ten years later, nothing's happening. So now he's had a son by his wife's servant. And then when Abram was 99 years old, this is now 13 years later, Yahweh appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. 
And I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down. God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I'll make you very fruitful. I'll make nations of you and kings will come from you. I'll establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my commandment, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you're to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised, you're to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who aren't your offspring. If they're in your house, they have to be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who hasn't been, un, hasn't been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. Get it? He has broken my covenant. And God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you'll no longer call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I'll bless her very surely, give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she'll be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed. He said to himself, really? Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Didn't I hear something about this 25 years ago? Sarah is going to bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, look, how about if we just have Ishmael live under your blessing? Right? He's my son. You bless him. We do it that way. God said, yeah. But your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you're going to call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful. I will greatly increase his numbers. He'll be the father of 12 rulers. I'll make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And when he'd finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. Uh, the very day, Abram took his son Ishmael. All those born in his household are bought with his money. Every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. His son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Verse 20, I will bless Ishmael. But then verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac. It's one thing for God to bless. It's another thing for him to establish a covenant. Already there's a distinction between some of Abraham's offspring and others. And so you know the next part of the story where Abraham is hanging out by his tent and the three visitors come. Many of us see this as a prefiguring of the Holy Trinity 
assuring Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and by that point, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And then in verse chapter 21, we read that Isaac is born. Yahweh was gracious to Sarah as he had said. Yahweh did for Sarah what he'd promised. Sarah became pregnant. She bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him just as God commanded. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. Naturally, some domestic conflict ensues. The child grows and is weaned. On the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast, but Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. She said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. That slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. This matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy and your servant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because, God says, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I'll make the son of the servant into a nation also. He's your offspring too. But it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Yet this was not the full extent of Abraham's beginning. We read in chapter 25, after Sarah died, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And we read in chapter 25, verse 5, that Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the son of his, sons of his concubines. Presumably people other than his wife Sarah and his wife Keturah. And he sent them away with his, from his son Isaac to the land of the east. So Abraham has been fruitful and multiplied a great deal. Yet nevertheless, God says it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Well, what happens with that? We read later on in chapter 25 that Isaac prayed to Yahweh on behalf of his wife, Rebekah. She was childless. Yahweh answered his prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. She said, why is this happening to me? Not the first, not the last mother to ask that. So she went to inquire of Yahweh. Yahweh said to her, you've got two nations in your womb, two peoples from whom, from within you will be separated. The one will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red. His whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which sounds nicer than hairy garment. (laughs) After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, which means he grasps the heel. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, but we know from what comes later, what happens to Esau? He gets tricked. 
He gets tricked out of his inheritance. And his descendants become the nation of Edom to the southeast of Israel, where a nation that was in conflict with the nation of Israel. Israel, of course, is the new name that Jacob gets later on after his wrestling match with God. And so we hear about being Abraham's children, but Abraham had a lot of children, didn't he? Yet it was only through Isaac that his offspring were reckoned. And Isaac had a couple of kids, but it was only through one of them that we trace the descent of God's people. So when we come here to chapter 9 in Romans, we should have that whole story rattling around in the back of our heads. That's why I told it. Beginning of chapter 9, Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Who's that? That's the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption. There's the divine glory. There's the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. But of course, Paul is writing this in a context where the vast majority of his fellow Israelites have not received this Messiah whom God has sent, this Messiah who himself is God over all, forever praised. And so the question that arises Certainly, it's one Paul wrestled with, is what about all these promises that God made? What about this whole thing where God was setting up this covenant with Abraham? God was going to be faithful to it. Well, Paul wants to be very clear in verse 6. It's not like God's word had failed. It's not that God's word has failed. Because not all who are of Israel are Israel. Not all who are out of Israel, literally, out of, who are descended from Israel, it's often translated, are Israel. Nor because they are his descendant are they all Abraham's children. To the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Genesis says. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I'm going to come back and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, literally in the Greek, and they were conceived in one business time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, that kind of doesn't seem fair, does it? 
Is that really how God does these things? Let's look back at what Paul said earlier on in Romans in chapter 2. You remember chapter 1, Paul talks about all the wicked things that those really wicked, awful people do. And at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, And all of you who are cheering me on as I condemn that wickedness, guess what? You're condemning yourselves because you do the very same things. And he goes on in chapter 2, verse 17, to say, Now you... If you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on Torah, you boast in God, you know his will, you approve of what is superior because you have instruction in Torah, you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish. If you see yourself speaking to Gentiles as being in the position of a kindergarten teacher, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? I mean, you, you have in Torah the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and then what do you do with it? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, don't you rob temples? You who boast in Torah, don't you dishonor God by breaking Torah? As it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That was not the idea, Right? God said to Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. God set up his people in the land so that they would live well according to his Torah, so that they would be a demonstration project of just how good it is when you follow God, when you live in the ways that he tells you to live. He said, I'm going to give you safety, I'm going to give you security, I'm going to give you prosperity, I'm going to give you health, there's going to be justice in your land, it's going to be so good, everybody's going to come through and say, what do they have that we don't got? That was the idea. But instead, as we learn from the history, as we read in the prophets, God's name is blasphemed, not honored. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You're supposed to enhance his reputation. Instead, you're ripping it down. Look, Paul says, circumcision has value if you, if you follow Torah, but if you break Torah, it, it's like you hadn't been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the requirements of Torah, won't they be regarded as though they were? The one who isn't circumcised physically and yet obeys Torah is going to have grounds to condemn you, who even though you have Torah, you have the written code, you have circumcision, you break the law. No, Paul says. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly. And circumcision isn't just an outward physical act. This is not just a medical procedure. No, Paul says, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise isn't from other people, but it's from God. Not all who are Israel are Israel, and a person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly. Then even more scandalously, Paul doesn't just talk about how folk who think that they are honoring God aren't. He talks about people who you wouldn't imagine could honor God who are. In chapter 4, he goes on and talks about Abraham. Remember, what, what are we going to say about what our father Abraham discovered? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, not before God, of course. But what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, 
and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to anybody who works, their wages aren't credited to them as a gift, but as an obligation. But to anyone who doesn't work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. How blessed are those whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness, Paul asks, only for the circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? Where might we find an answer to that question? Paul says, let's look in the Bible. And we've been saying Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. All right, here's a quiz on the story. Under what circumstances was it credited? When does Scripture say that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness? Did that happen before Abraham was circumcised or did it happen after he was circumcised? Anybody remember? Before. It wasn't after, it was before. So Abe received circumcision as a sign, as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was yet uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, even if they haven't been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And then he's also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It wasn't through Torah that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he'd be heir of the world, because there was no Torah yet. That happened hundreds of years later on Mount Sinai. It was through the righteousness of faith. People who depend on Torah are heirs, and faith means nothing. The promise is worthless, because Torah brings wrath. Where There's no Torah, there's no transgression. No, the, the pro- promise, Paul says, comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of Torah, not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles who have Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all, just as it's written. I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead, who calls into being the things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, Paul says generously, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He was 100 years old. Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith. And he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. In the words, it was credited to him. They weren't just written for him. But they were also written for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For all who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the full scope of the story that Paul is telling. It doesn't just start and end with Abraham and certain of his descendants. This is a story of cosmic reconciliation 
of the forgiveness of sins for all, not just those of a certain family. And in doing that, Paul says, it's not like God's word failed. It's not like God isn't coming through on his promises to that one family, to that one group that he gave the special commission to. No, he's expanding, he's exploding that definition of what it means to be his people. How do we make sense of that? How do we understand that as just? Well, Paul says, yeah, see, it's not everybody who's descended from Israel who's Israel. Not because they are his descendants. Are they all Abraham's children? And remember, he had Abraham's children that weren't. Reckoned his offspring, Ishmael, children of Keturah, his concubines. Not even all of Isaac's children, just one of them. In other words, Paul says it's not the natural children who are God's children. It is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Does anybody else have difficulty making sense of this? Anybody else finding this hard? I know I do. And I think Paul did too. We talked about last week. There was that story Paul tells about how he went off in the deserts of Arabia basically for three years. And I can imagine him sitting there with all of his scrolls puzzling out how it could be that God was being faithful to his promises when, in fact, he had done the things that he had done. In many ways, Romans 9 to 11 is Paul's way of making sense of how this works. That's what we're going to be working on over the next six months or so. That's why this is difficult. This is chewy. That's why we're going to take some time going through it. We're going to have some help from other friends. But I hope and I pray that the time we're going to take in these chapters is going to bear fruit in our understanding of God and how he works out his purposes. It will bear fruit in our understanding of how we relate to all of our neighbors, but especially our Jewish neighbors, how we understand this word that God has given us. We can see how much Paul wrestled with this word, and so we want to do the same. So I'd urge you, as we go through this, when you find things that are difficult, don't give up. When you find things that are confusing or seem contradictory, don't just blow it off and go read Psalm 23 again or something. This, this is challenging, but I think it's a challenge that God's called us to step up to. Let's pray. Father, we gratefully receive your word as you've given it to us in its complexity and in its clarity. We thank you for the parts that make sense to us easily and we thank you for the parts that we find so difficult. We pray that As we study, especially as we study 
Romans 9 to 11, that you would be gracious to give us insight that your spirit who inspired our brother Paul to write these words would also illuminate our reading of the text. I pray that you would give us new insight as we read ourselves, as we discuss it with one another, as we come here to hear it preached. Pray that as we engage this word you've given us, that we would be faithful hearers of it, faithful servants of you, the Holy One of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All this we ask in the name of Jesus, our Messiah and Lord. Amen. <clears throat> 